Hey, I got a, I got a great passage for you today. Actually, our, our, our journey through Luke as we jump into a, a new sub-series of our current series called The Rejected King is, is a three-act play today. We've got a three-act uh, drama as the story of Luke unfolds. And so we're going to get right in this morning. If you have your Bible, grab it. And I want to launch in by reminding us um, and actually just telling us how Luke starts uh, starts the story this morning. He starts this way. Now the festival of unleavened bread called the Passover was approaching. You see, right away, uh, as the opening, as the curtains come up and the opening scene is un, uh, unleashed onto us, we uh, get a sense of where we are. It is almost the Passover. It is almost a moment in the nation's history where people will gather to celebrate this meal together, this meal that is all about freedom and liberation and hope and the power of God over uh, tyranny, oppression in, in this world. It was a season that was filled with joy and celebration, but in Jesus' day, there was a dark cloud over it. You see, the thing that everyone was talking about, that was on everyone's mind, was the fact that the nation of Israel, God's people in Jesus' day, were currently being ruled by a godless Roman empire that oppressed them. And this is a reality that was with them all the time. It was in their face every single day. But to live under the tyranny of Rome and to pay taxes to Rome and to have your temple controlled by Rome and to see Roman soldiers in your streets was hard to stomach all year long, but it was especially hard during this season, during Passover season, during the festival of unleavened bread. This was the moment every year when to not be free was a lot harder to take. And so every year at Passover, the people, as it approached, would wonder and they would pray, is this the year God will do it? Is this the year that God will send Messiah to set us free once more? And now Luke tells us that this time of tension and anticipation and hope is getting real close. You see, you can feel the temperature rising as the curtains to our first act come up. Now the festival of unleavened bread called the Passover was approaching and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus for they were afraid of the people. See, the religious leaders can see that the crowds are with Jesus, that the crowds are intrigued by Jesus. And tens of thousands of people have swarmed into Jerusalem for Passover and the buzz on the streets is all about this rabbi from Nazareth. Could he be the one? Have you heard the stories? Have you seen the miracles? And just when it would seem that some of the energy and some of the hype and some of the the, uh, excitement around Jesus would start to die down, one of them would show up. That girl who almost died, but now jumps rope out in front of her house. Those guys that now wear tank tops all the time to show off their skin because they were once covered in leprosy, but now they've been healed. You see, the stories just keep coming. The energy and fervor and excitement around Jesus just keeps growing. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law, they know that the crowds are with him. Verse 3 Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve, 
And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. See, if you've been following along uh, for 21 chapters, this is a moment when everything shifts. See, everyone knows the religious leaders hate Jesus. The Pharisees and Sadducees and teachers of the law and chief priests, they wanted to kill Jesus, it seems, from the very beginning. But a follower... A disciple, one of the twelve, someone who's seen the miracles and heard the teaching and experienced the love and compassion and truth and power of Jesus up close in an intimate way, to think that the betrayal of Jesus won't come from outside, but that it will be an inside job is almost unimaginable, unthinkable. But as shocking as it is, it's where our story starts with a guy named Judas. And to fully understand what Luke is telling us here, we must understand more about this guy named Judas. What's going on with Judas? You see, there were a lot of groups who did not like the Romans. Almost everyone in Israel did not like the Romans. But no one hated the Romans as much as the Zealots. The Zealots were zealous for religious freedom and their plan was revolt. Their plan was to rise up and fight the power with power, to use force, physical violence, any means necessary to free God's people from the oppressive, evil, pagan Romans. And perhaps the most committed, the most passionate, the Navy SEALs of the Zealots, if you will, were a group of secret assassins who would carry daggers with them, daggers concealed in their robes. And from time to time, when the crowds would get big and commotion would start, they would pull out their daggers and they would strike with deadly force, killing Roman soldiers one at a time. And as the years went on and these killings continued, these particular zealots were given a nickname, a name that came from the Aramaic word for dagger. It's the word sekirai. The Sikari. And many scholars believe that the name given to a man who was one of the Sikari, one of the zealots who carried a dagger to assassinate the Romans, was the title Iscariot. And Iscariot, one of the Sikari. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot. You see, Luke is telling us something here about Judas. He's telling us something about his motivations. Judas, as one of the Sikari, has been hoping and praying and counting on Jesus. He's been following him for years, hoping that he would be the Messiah, hoping that he would be the one to lead a revolution and overthrow the Romans by force and drive them out of the beloved capital city of Jerusalem. You see, that's Judah's hope, that's his dream, that's his agenda, that's his perspective and plan. But now here we are, Passover, everyone's in the city, and this is the perfect moment. The moment when Jesus has entered the city to the cheers and cries of the crowd. The moment when revolution and revolt are in the air because of the festival of Passover. And Jesus tells his disciples in this moment that instead of him overthrowing Rome, Rome is going to overthrow them. 
that they will suffer and be persecuted, that Jerusalem will be destroyed, that the nation's beloved temple will be completely annihilated and torn down. You see, friends, this does not fit with Judas' plan. This is not how Judas thinks things should go. And so Judas cashes in on Jesus because he likes his plan better. He understands his plan more. Judas wants his plan more than he wants God's plan. And in verse 6, Luke gives us a key descriptor of what's going on inside of Judas. And I believe these are words that serve as a warning to you and me as well. The key characteristic, the marker of someone who wants their plan more than God's plan. He, Judas, that is, consented and watched for an opportunity. He consented. Do you know what it is to consent? Have you consented recently to anything? I think of... When I think about consenting, I always think about the consent forms I have to fill out as a parent for every single activity my children do. We love to consent in our society. But ultimately what consent means is it means that you agree, you surrender, you yield, you permit, you approve, you comply with the plans of another See, this is a story about a guy who has consented, who has yielded, who has walked away from the plans of God and consented to, the, his, to his own plans, the plans of the enemy. And let me be clear on this, friends. This is not just a place where Judas is struggling or he's tempted or even sometimes slips up. We all have those moments. We're talking here about a decision to go against God's way. We're talking here about justifying in your mind that God's plan doesn't make sense or work or is not what you want. And so you just agree, you just yield, you just consent to doing it your way. To doing it in a way that does not follow the plan of God. Friends, that's when we play the role of Judas. That's what Judas does here. And friends, when we consent to willfully reject God's plans, we leave a door wide open for Satan to enter and do his work. That's when Satan enters. You see, in verse 3 it says, Then Satan entered Judas. And sometimes when people read this passage, they might be tempted to think that this is like an exorcist moment, like a possession moment where the, like some evil force just goes into, into Judas and now he's just a robot and he's doing what he cannot help but do. And certainly Satan is involved in this. Certainly the enemy is involved in this. But I'd argue this. Luke is telling us that the enemy, that the Satan, that the forces of evil have partnered with Judas in the midst of his compromise, in the midst of his consent. You want to know if you're consenting, friends? You want to know if you're walking away from God's plan and pursuing plans of your own, plans that go against the plans of the Father? Here's a good sign that you've consented to something. You're watching for an opportunity. You see, that's what Luke tells us that Judas is doing. He's consented. He's yielded to the fact that he does not want to, that he is not willing to follow the plans of God. And now he's watching for an opportunity. Watching for an opportunity to walk away from the Father. Watching for an opportunity to embrace a plan other than Jesus' plan. You consenting anywhere in your life right now? 
Got any places where you're watching for an opportunity to pursue plans that aren't of the Lord? Maybe you're watching for an opportunity to slander that person at work, that person who's hurt you, that person who's competing with you, that person who's maybe slandered you, and now you're just watching, you're just waiting for an opportunity to get revenge. Maybe you're watching for an opportunity to spend time with that person you know is out of bounds with your spouse. And you've just yielded to the fact. You've just started to justify it in your mind. And you've consented to making plans. And now you're just watching. Now you're just waiting. Waiting for the right moment. Maybe you're watching for an opportunity to get revenge. Maybe you're watching for an opportunity to engage that habit or behavior that gives you instant pleasure and momentary relief. Maybe you've yielded to the fact, you've consented, and you're now watching for an opportunity to do that thing you know full well goes against the plans and purposes of God. You see, Judas has now engaged his own plan. He's consented. He's watching. How about you? Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it, they asked. See, now we've entered scene two. This has been a quick scene change. The curtains come down. It's come back up. And and, and instead of the dark, gloomy, sinister stage set, we now have something a little lighter, a little brighter, even some comedy in this scene. It's now Thursday morning. It's Thursday morning of the week that Jesus will die. Tomorrow is Good Friday. The Passover meal is to be celebrated this very night. And so we have to understand that when Jesus says to Peter and John, go make some preparations for the Passover. And then they ask him, where do you want us to prepare for it? There's some skepticism in their question. There's some hesitation. There's some confusion. There's a whole heck of a lot of doubt. Now, first of all, I'll tell you this. uh, Jesus just sends two of his disciples to prepare for the Passover. Why? He just picks Peter and John. Because the city is so filled with people. There are so many folks preparing for the Passover. Tens of thousands of folks have descended on Jerusalem for this meal. They are all getting ready. By law, you had to celebrate the meal inside the city limits. There are only so many places available. There are only so many stores open. And so, friends, what the religious leaders do is they make a a rule, a law. They say, in your party, however big your party is, only two people are allowed to do the shopping. There are so many people shopping for this moment that there's a shopping ban in society. Two per group. And Jesus picks Peter and John. He says, why don't you guys go make preparations for us to eat the Passover? And they kind of look at each other. Where do you want us to do that, Jesus? How's that going to work? You see, friends, this is sort of like saying to your wife at 4 p.m. on Valentine's Day, I think I'm going to try and get reservations for the best restaurant in town tonight. Jesus' request here is, is, is a day late and a dollar short. Everything's booked. Everything's packed. And so Peter and John are thinking, Jesus, hey man, we know you like to wing it, but you may have procrastinated a little too long this time. Jesus replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished, 
Make preparations there. This is like Jesus saying, you're going to go in the city and you're going to get the best booth at the best restaurant in town. That's what's going to happen. And the guys are going, no way. No chance this is going to happen. I've had fun all week just picturing Peter and John in this moment. Um, Luke writes this with a a little bit tongue-in-cheek, a little bit of comedy here. First of all, men didn't carry water in the first century. It, It was a job for women. No respectable man would be carrying water around. And so Peter and John are going to the city and I can just hear Peter because Peter's the loudmouth. Peter's the verbal processor. Peter's the one who says stuff before he thinks. John's a little bit more introspective. I can relate with Peter. And he's saying to John, are you kidding me? Does Jesus really think this is going to work out? He doesn't have plans. He doesn't have reservation. And we're going to find some dude carrying water. Does he know how many thousands of people are in the city? Did he even give you a name, John? An address? Anything? Is the guy going to be wearing a rose or holding a bouquet of flowers or something? And John's just like, no, Peter. No, Peter. No, Peter. And he's like, this is never going to work out. And then all of a sudden they look over. There he is. There's a dude carrying water. There's a dude with a giant crystal geyser jug on his shoulder. And I can just picture the guy. He's been doing laps for like an hour. When are they going to get here? Are you serious? Right? Like, Peter and John go, unbelievable. There he is. And so they follow him. And they go to this home. And I can see him standing there looking at each other. Are you going to ask? No, you're not asking. You ask. This is going to be silly. There's no way this is going to work out. You ask. You ask. And so I'm sure it was Peter. Hey, we're looking for a room, an upstairs room, fully furnished, Passover tonight. Got anything available? And the guy says, you with J-Dog? Yeah, come with me. You're in, just like that, right? And so we learn, right? We learn that Jesus is in control. We learn that Even though in scene one, it sure looked like the plan was unfolding just the way the religious leaders wanted. Even though in scene one, it looked like Judas was driving the ship. That Satan and his plan were moving forward. In this scene, we find out that it's actually been God's plan all along. Jesus knows exactly what's happening. He's in control. And everything is going just according to his plan. And so what Luke is communicating to us very clearly is there's always a plan. God's always at work. He's always in control. And the question remains... Is there any place in your life where you need to remember that today? Is there any place in your life maybe where there's been loss or discouragement, maybe a place of hurt or pain, maybe a place where you're just tired or unsure or questioning? Maybe there's a place in your life where you need to remember this morning that God is in control. You need to embrace that truth and you need to remember that even when it looks silly, even when it's foolish, even when it seems like the enemy is winning the day, God is in control and his plan will prevail. And friends, maybe maybe the place you most need to hear that is in the place you're most tempted to consent. You're most tempted to say, God, your plan's not working. It's not going to work. I'm just going to give in and I'm going to go down my own path. Got any places in your life like that? Maybe... In relationship, maybe in your sexuality, maybe in your marriage. 
maybe in your dating life, maybe you're looking at how things are unfolding and you're thinking, this is never going to work. I can't do it God's way. That's just foolishness. That's just silly. It's not going to happen. And you're tempted to give in. You're tempted to concede. You're tempted to just take the reins and go your own direction. And God says, don't lose faith. I've always got a plan. I'm always at work. I'm always working behind the scenes. Verse 14. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. You see, now we're on to scene three. See, in the first scene, we discovered that our plan is characterized by consent. In the second scene, we discovered that Jesus' plan is characterized by obedience. Obedience to the Father. And see, what Luke does is he says, you have Judas over here who will do his plan, who will concede, and you have Jesus who will, who will hold on to God's plan no matter what. No matter what. In fact, in this, this verse right here, it says, Jesus says, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Actually, if you read the original language, it reads this way. I have desired, desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. It's actually just a double word. It makes no sense. I have desired, desired. But that's because in the Greek language, that's how they, they showed intensity. They didn't have boldface type or italics or an underlined command on their keyboard. And so to, to add emphasis, they would repeat words. That's why all throughout the New Testament you see these double words, right? Like from glory to glory. It's just a way of saying like a massive amount of glory. Or grace upon grace. God-sized, enormous grace. And here we have Jesus saying, I desire, desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. He says this meal and all that it represents... I desire, desire it. I embrace it. I receive it. You see, this is Jesus being emphatic. This passage contrasts the betrayal of Judas with the faithfulness of Jesus. One will reject and walk away from God's plan. One will consent. And the other will eagerly embrace and desire God's plan, even when that plan requires pain and sacrifice and suffering. Verse 17, After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you, for I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. You see, friends, now we're into the Passover meal, scene three. And just for a little review, the Passover was this meal that had been, that was eaten the night before the Israelites were liberated by God from slavery in Egypt. It's also called the Feast of Unleavened Bread, because they had to leave Egypt with such haste that the bread did not have time to rise, and so their, their bread was unleavened. It had not risen. It's like flat bread, like a pita bread. And the night before they were liberated from Pharaoh, they ate this meal, and God said to them, I want you from now on, from this point forward as a people, to eat this meal repeatedly every year as just this perpetual memorial so that you will never forget this night, so that you will never forget how I saved you by my grace and power. And they had been eating this meal every year at the Passover for 1,500 years. And so Jesus comes to this very familiar table, this very familiar meal. And it's the same food, and it's the same script every single time. In verse 17, Jesus gets up, and he takes the cup, and he does what the Jewish heads of families had done for centuries. He gives thanks to God. There were four cups throughout the Passover meal. This is the first one. It's the one that kicks off the celebration. It's the cup of thanks. 
And immediately after the cup of thanks, the youngest person in the group would have asked this question, why is tonight different from all other nights? And the answer would have been given, tonight's the night we remember the power of God for freedom and liberation, even over the strongest, most powerful empires in this world. And then they would eat. The same dishes every year. This is like your Thanksgiving meal. Every year, mom makes this and this and this and this, except for their dishes had meaning. The bitter herbs to remember the bitterness of slavery and the salt water to represent the tears that were shed and the caroset, which was this thick paste of apples and nuts and figs that represented the mortar used by the Hebrew slaves to make bricks and the cinnamon sticks reminding them of the straw used to hold those bricks together. And so Jesus is just following the script. He's just going right through the meal just as if they would expect. Just what they've been doing for 1,500 years. But then all of a sudden... He breaks tradition. All of a sudden, the script changes. And believe me, friends, they noticed. Verse 19, And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Again, this is the unleavened bread. This is the bread of their affliction that their ancestors ate in the wilderness. But now Jesus says, no, not anymore. From this point forward, this bread is not about your affliction. It's about my affliction. This bread is not about your suffering. It's about my suffering. It's my body given for you. My life is going to be poured out for you to have life. In the same way, after the supper He took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Now, I mentioned earlier there are four cups that happened throughout the Passover celebration. There was the cup of thanks at the beginning, and then there was the the cup of freedom from slavery, then there was the cup of redemption, and then there was the cup where God would come and take his people as his own. This cup that Jesus holds up here in Luke chapter 20, all the scholars agree, this is cup Number three, this is the cup of redemption. And what Jesus is saying here is, how are you going to be redeemed? How are you going to be restored? How are you going to be brought back into right relationship with the Father? Through not just this cup, but through my blood, through my sacrifice, through my life that I'm going to give on the cross. And one cool thing about the Passover celebration, we don't see it here as clearly in Luke, although it's there, but all throughout the New Testament, every time Jesus celebrates the Passover... He never drinks the fourth cup. Jesus celebrates the Passover. He gets through cup number three, and then it's like, mic drop, I'm out. Why does Jesus not drink the fourth cup? In fact, he even says here, I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Why? Because the cup, the fourth cup, happens when he returns. He says, this is the time of the third cup. This is the time of redemption. This is the time when God will come to redeem you. And then someday I'll come back and we'll celebrate that fourth cup together. And then you can be my people and I can be your people. And the kingdom will come in all its fullness. And everything will be just as it should be. You see, friends, when Jesus chooses the Passover as this context for talking about his death, do you know what he's saying? He's saying, years ago they ate a meal before God. Years ago, they ate a meal before God had redeemed them from political and economic slavery from Egypt. But tonight, we eat this meal to declare that through me, God will redeem us from sin and death. 
and evil itself. This is not just redemption from some earthly power or kingdom. This is redemption from the very forces of hell. And then Luke closes, But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. See, this is a moment in the meal where I've always been a little confused. I try to put myself there, and maybe you have too. Uh, and the, dis- the different gospel writers talk about this differently. In, in Matthew and Mark, there's-, there's some dipping. You see, in a traditional Jewish Passover, you were constantly dipping. You were tearing off pieces of, of unleavened bread, this flat bread, and you were dipping it in what they called the sop, this mixture of wine and spices and such. And so there's this constant tearing and dipping throughout the meal. Sort of like the way we eat chips and salsa at a Mexican restaurant. Like you go there, you know you've got a giant plate of, plate of food coming, but you just can't stop eating the chips and salsa. Right? You just keep dipping and grabbing and dipping and grabbing. That's what they're doing throughout this meal. And then all of a sudden, Jesus seems to say, Hey, whoever, he says this in, in Mark, whoever dips with me is the one who will betray me. Whoever dips at the same time. Right? And, and I have to say, this is a moment that confuses me because if I heard Jesus say that, whoever dips with me is going to be the one who betrays me, I'm dropping my chips and I'm watching the bowl. I mean, it's like, did did Judas just not hear him? Is he possessed to the point where it's like, I can't help it, right? And all the disciples are watching, so now they should certainly know it's Judas. We knew it, right? But that's not how the story goes. They don't know who it is. Actually, the, the, the way the story really happens, Matthew clarifies it for us, is Jesus is speaking in past tense. He says, the one who dipped with me. You know, if you're at a table and everyone's dipping and grabbing and dipping and grabbing and you go for the bowl at the same time as someone else, there's kind of this awkward moment like, well, now who should go first? That's the moment that Jesus and Judas just had. But no one else really noticed it. There's only two people at the table who know that Jesus and Judas just dipped together. Who are those two? Jesus and Judas. And so this is Jesus saying, hey, Judas, I know what you're up to. I know about your plans. I know about the way you've consented and yielded to the plans of the authorities and the government and the religious leaders and even Satan. But I'm not scared because my plan is still in full effect. And so he says, I'm fully aware, Judas. You're not doing anything in secret. You see, friends, sometimes we can fool ourselves into believing that God doesn't see us, that he doesn't know when we've started to walk down our own path when we started to live our lives of comfort and luxury for ourselves and said, God, I don't want to do it your way. I'll just do it my way. We started to use our money in ways that aren't honoring to him. When we started to use our language, we've started to use our bodies. When we've started to like walk down a road in marriage that is not in accordance with God's plan. And we kind of had this idea that maybe God doesn't see. He sees it all. He sees every single moment See, the one, and Luke doesn't talk about the dipping. Why doesn't Luke talk about the dipping? He just says their hands are on the table. Luke doesn't talk about the dipping because he's writing to Gentiles. And they don't know anything about this whole Passover deal. Anyway, they're they're not concerned with the details. But what Luke wants us to know is this. Jesus knows. Jesus knows. Jesus knows that the enemy has a plan. And it doesn't phase him one bit. Not one bit. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed. My plans will go forward in spite of you, Judas. My plans will go forward in spite of what you've got working in the background. But woe to that man who betrays him. 
they began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. You see, we have this idea, friends, sometimes that evil people like Judas are really easy to spot. I mean, we... We have this idea that if we line the 12 disciples up right now in front of us, in front of the stage, and we said, which one's Judas? We all have the sense that we'd be able to figure out which one he was. I could point out Judas, right? He'd be the one with the little smirk, the pointy ears, and the forked tail, right? He was the liar, the cheater, the thief. And certainly, after three years of being together, the disciples would have sniffed him out. When Jesus says, whoever had their hand on the table with me, they're the ones who's going to betray me. I can just see Peter and James and John huddling up. Who do you think it was? I'm pretty sure I know. Pe- Professor Plum with the candlestick in the library for sure, right? They have no clue. They have no clue it was Judas. You see, friends, we are so good at hiding our conceit. We're so good at hiding it. We're so good at hiding our betrayal. We even hide our betrayal from ourselves. We can be on our own path, living for our own plans, walking away from the plans of the Father, and be fully convinced, telling ourselves, we are walking with God. That's why we so desperately need the Holy Spirit. That's why we so desperately need community. That's why we so desperately need the eyes of others to say, hey, you know what? I think you might be off a little bit. Here's the deal with this story. Three acts. The first act and the last act are about betrayal. The center act is about the will of the Father. About how God's plans and purposes prevail even in the face of the most sinister, backstabbing, evil betrayal you can possibly imagine. Jesus being betrayed by one of his very own disciples. You see, friends, right in the middle of whatever you're facing, no matter how bad it is, The will and plan of God is still active and it's still available to you. Still available to you. Because God works in spite of us. God can even take the most awful, horrible things of this world and use them for his good will and plans and purposes. And we see that most significantly, friends, in the cross. We see that in the way that God took the the murder of his very own son and used it as the redemptive force for all of creation, all of humanity, and even for you. And so this morning, friends, I'm in just a minute going to invite the ushers to pass out the communion elements to us. And I want to just give you a second to ask, where am I off the path? Where in my life am I maybe walking down my own roads? Where in my life have I walked away from the plans and purposes of God for me? Where am I even tempted to concede, to yield, to start looking for opportunities to live for myself and not for the plans and purposes of the Father? So take a minute and just ask the Holy Spirit to help you search your heart. God, where am I on the wrong road? Where am I walking and living like Judas today, in a dangerous place? Where am I giving the enemy an open door into my life and mind and heart and motivations? Where am I just inviting in the evil one to use me for his plans instead of the plans of the Father? If you've got any places like that, friends, the best place to bring them is to the table, to the foot of the cross, where Jesus can kill them, where he can redeem them, where he can pull you back in, 
and invite you to once again walk with him. So spend a few minutes. Search your heart, search your mind, get real honest with God. And then the elements will be distributed and we'll receive them together in just a moment.